In the meantime, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at all of chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11 because they go together. You're aware that the chapter and verse designations came way later. They're not in the original manuscripts or the copies that we have. The topic, Paul tells the believers in Corinth that the ends of the ages has come and he urges them to follow him as he follows Jesus. The title of our message, one day they'll look to see we're gone for tomorrow he'll reign and so I'll follow God's son. No Beatles fans. Father, thank you so much for our morning thus far. Uh, I pray that you would... uh, attend the teaching, Lord, in a unique way, that your spirit would reveal himself uh, to our hearts, Lord, and bring these truths home and to bear on our life experience and the things that we're going through. Meet every need here, Lord, in a way that only you can. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Gerald Ford was an athlete in his youth, took care of himself all his life, and was still in really great shape when he came to the White House. After he slipped one rainy day and fell headlong down the stairs coming off Air Force One, he developed a reputation for being a klutz. SNL and other comets had a field day. You can go online and see hilarious compilations of celebrity trip and falls. Some falls are not funny. Dr. Robert Atkins of Atkins Diet fame died on April 17 back in 2003 in New York from head injuries suffered in a fall near his office. He was 72 years old. Dave Freeman, whose book 100 Things to Do Before You Die inspired the film The Bucket List, died after hitting his head from a fall at his home. He was 47. I wonder how many things he got to do that were on his bucket list. Serious falls were a problem in the church at Corinth. They were spiritual falls. In verse 12, we'll read, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Comparing church-age believers to the Israelites in their exodus, Paul will say that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Sit, stand, fall. It was a pattern of behavior in Corinth that needed to be corrected. Should be replaced with what Paul encouraged in the first verse of chapter 11, where he says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Sit, stand, follow is a pattern Paul provided to replace sit, stand, fall. It will make more sense as we work through the chapter. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, take heed to not sit, stand, and fall. Number two, take heed to sit, stand, and follow. Let's take a look at uh, not falling in verses 1 through 22. Satan sits on a throne, at least he did in the first century, so probably he still does today. In the Revelation, Jesus told the believers in the church at Pergamos, or Pergamos, you dwell where Satan's throne is. I don't know where Satan calls headquarters today. I do know that you don't want to sit down with the devil or any of his principalities and powers or his rulers of the darkness of this age. But that is precisely what Paul told the believers in Corinth they were doing when they dined in the pagan temples where the food was first ritually sacrificed to God's. Paul began to address the issue with several illustrations from the Old Testament. So let's put in at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, 
and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The believers Paul was writing to were mostly Gentiles, but it seems they had a good knowledge of the Old Testament. Paul had been there a year and a half teaching, and of course that's where he would teach from because there was no New Testament. And so they had a good handle, at least on some major stories in the life of Israel. Before looking at the particulars, here's Paul's overall point. The Israelites were God's supernaturally delivered people who used their freedom to indulge themselves and thereby were falling into sin. As God's supernaturally delivered people, we should take heed and not do likewise. Moses delivered the Israelites from bondage to Egypt. They were baptized to Moses, means that they identified with him as the deliverer when they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. In the wilderness, the Israelites ate and drank supernaturally supplied food. Jesus delivers us from bondage to sin. A Christian is baptized into Jesus Christ. We have spiritual food and water to sustain our walk. Verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. What an understatement of the facts. With most of them, he wasn't pleased. All of them who had left Egypt over the age of 20 died in the wilderness over a period of four decades. All that is except two, Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies who urged the people to go into the land. Verse six, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is Paul's quick summary of the famous incident in Exodus involving the making and worshiping of the golden calf. They sat and drunkenly feasted around the newly forged idol. When they stood, their feasting turned into an immoral orgy. Verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. This incident is from later in their history, recorded in the book of Numbers. Moabite women came into the camp of Israel, and the men were having sex with them. It brought upon them a judgment from God in which 23,000 were killed. Verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21, the Israelites complained against Moses because all they had to eat was manna. God sent snakes into the camp, fiery serpents who bit the people, and many of them died. Then verse 10, nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is from number 16, where the people complained against Moses, and a plague came and destroyed many of them. Taken together, these incidents from Jewish history describe perfectly what the believers in Corinth were doing. They were attending feasts to the idols, reminiscent of the Jews feasting around the golden calf. Some of them in Corinth were engaging in sexual activity with the temple prostitutes, similar to the Moabite women coming into the camp of Israel. The Corinthians were adding the wisdom of the world to the things of the Lord. Like the Israelites, they were not content with God's provision of spiritual food and drink and were looking for other sources. They were complaining against Paul and suggesting he wasn't a real apostle not unlike the complaints of the Israelites against Moses and his spiritual leadership. So verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The things we read in the Old Testament 
are examples to admonish us in our walk with the Lord. We ought to take heed to them because we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Ends of the ages can be uh, translated the fulfillment of the ages. It means that we are to think of ourselves as living in the last days when the return of Jesus to resurrect and rapture the church is imminent. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The believers in Corinth thought they had good spiritual posture and a strong walk with the Lord and could handle sitting at the pagan meals. They knew the meat was sacrificed to demons. They watched the sacrifice. Uh, They participated in it to a certain extent. They maybe didn't say the words or repeat uh, some of the behaviors, but but it was all part of a big ritual. Uh, But they thought it was no big deal because uh, the gods were no big deal. There's one God, and and he's uh, Yahweh. Paul was strongly admonishing them that they were headed for an injurious spiritual fall, that this was actually pride and not maturity. So verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So this is one of those great go-to verses in the Bible. We use it all the time to encourage people uh, when they're going through struggles. So let's make sure we understand it, and I'm pretty sure we do. Temptation here means trial or testing. The way Paul used it is of some trial that comes upon you that God then uses as a testing of your faith. Two things help you put trials into their proper perspective. First, they are common to man. Trials are to be expected in this fallen world. They are commonplace. We should therefore never think it's strange when trials come. Uh, They come upon non-believers. They come upon believers. Uh, We live in a fallen world where terrible things happen. Uh, Bad things even happen to good people and to God's people. And second, trials are never beyond your ability to overcome with God's help. There is always either a way of escape or the promise of supernatural empowering to bear it. So you can trust God to provide help in a trial that he has not necessarily originated, but that he is allowing. So God is your help. It's not strange that you're in a trial. It's commonplace, but you can expect God's help and to grow and to be blessed as you walk with him either out of it or through it. Paul, uh, Gordon Fee writes, Paul's point then is that in ordinary human trials, one can expect divine aid. There is no danger of falling here, but it is otherwise with idolatry. The way out in that case is simply put in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so the uh, believers in Corinth were thinking that they, this was some temptation that wouldn't overcome them. But Paul says, no, trials, you know, this is what happens in trials. But when you're giving into temptation, then you need to just flee that. You you can't call that a trial. So when you choose, easier way of saying it, when you choose to behave wrongly, it isn't a trial. Uh, And we've all done this, and I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but uh, one of the common ones I get a lot is that, uh, people, or believers rather, feel they are being persecuted at work. Work's not going well, you're being persecuted. This isn't all the time, but many times. Uh, you're being persecuted at work, and the truth is you're just not a very good employee. And, and that happens sometimes. 
I remember when I was a sales manager for one of the title companies in Southern California, we had a young Christian gal working for us. She, was, uh, she did deliveries for us and messenger service. And we were, you know, scaling down. So I had to fire her. So I fired her. And she said, I thought you were a Christian. And I said, well, I thought you would be a good employee, but you're not. So you're fired, you know, and that, I mean, sometimes you make your own trial. And I think sometimes we're afraid to tell our friends and family, hey, this is, this is your doing. I, I, you know, God's not obligated to make a way out until you repent and figure out that you're in the wrong. You've decided to do this. Uh, and so uh, the Corinthians were in a weird kind of way saying, well, we're not going to fall because God will keep us from falling. And, and Paul was saying, this isn't a trial, it's a temptation that you are yielding to willfully. And so there's no obligation for God to get you out of it. You need to get yourself out of it by doing the right thing. Verse 15, I speak to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. This could be sanctified sarcasm, like, hey, you guys think you're so wise. But since we can't really know, let's receive it as an appeal to sanctified common sense. I mean, after all, Paul's been arguing with them or presenting an argument rather and he's coming to the end of it and he's hoping that they're getting it he, he's not just trying to rebuke them he wants to get them on board with the truth verse 16 the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of christ the bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of christ for we though many are one bread and one body for we all partake of that one bread this by the way is not a teaching about communion Paul is using communion, the Lord's Supper, as an example. And so there's no doctrine here about what is mystically or non-mystically taking place at communion. You'll see the application in a minute. When a Christian participates in the Lord's Supper, he or she is sharing in fellowship with the Lord. It's more than just eating and drinking. We teach it as a memorial. It's not mystical. The, the actual presence of Jesus doesn't mystically come into the wafer, nothing like that. Uh, but at the same time, it's meaningful, and you are in fellowship with the Lord in a special way. Verse 18, observe Israel after the flesh. Are, they the, are not the, those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Israel after the flesh is referring to Jews under the law of Moses, ethnic Jews. When a Jew brought his sacrifice, part of the meat would be offered to the Lord. Part of it would be given to the priests for them to consume. And part would be consumed by the offerer. Both the Lord's Supper and the temple sacrifices were times of fellowship with the believers and God. Paul applied this principle of participation to the pagan feasts that the Corinthians were attending. He's going to tell them that it's like having fellowship with demons, whether you think of it that way or not. So verse 19, what am I saying then, that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Earlier, Paul had indicated that an idol was by itself nothing compared to God. However, sitting down in the temple of the idol and participating in the ceremonies was something more. The idol might be a thing of wood or stone, but behind all that type of idolatry is the devil who desires to be worshipped. Food sacrificed in the pagan temples is, in fact, being sacrificed to demons, whether they thought so or not. Uh, there were actual demons behind these uh, images, and so in that sense... 
Uh, just like when you have communion or just like when the Jews ate meals in the temple that were sacrificed, this is what the uh, pagans thought you were doing and this is what you were actually doing. And so it's more than just buying the meat and barbecuing it at home. And because of this principle of participation, if you are there, you are fellowshipping with demons. And so verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And so Paul is just black and white here. He says, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that when I have communion, I'm in rich fellowship with the Lord, but when I'm doing that with a demon, that means nothing. Uh, And so he says, choose one or the other. You must choose the Lord over idols. It's not really a gray area. He said, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Participating in such ceremonies at the pagan temple would be like going out on a date with someone who is not your fiance. There's a justifiable jealousy. Hey, I called you last night to talk about the wedding invitations. Where were you? I had a really hot date. Oh, I guess we don't have to talk about the wedding invitations after all. Paul's statement, are we stronger than he? That's a rebuke to those whose argument was that they were so strong in the Lord that participation in the pagan ceremonies was no big deal. Instead of seeing how near you can come to idolatry, see how far you can keep away from it. So how does this apply to us in America where our restaurants are mostly not sacrificing the lasagna to idols, as far as we can tell? Normally, I'd talk about idolatry in general, but that is, well, too general. I think when you say, like we classically do, hey, anything can be an idol, then I check out because I, I don't know what that means. I, I, well, I know what it means, but it's like there's so many things to choose from that I don't know where to begin. So how about this? It's been said that you become what you worship. I think that's true to a point. Uh, it's like people who start looking like their pets. All I can say is you should think about that before you get a pug or a bulldog. Some pets, you know, they're, they're kind of attractive in their own way. Some are really ugly. All those wrinkles. Sharpay, nobody wants to look like a Sharpay. So be careful. You're starting to look like your dog. It gives us an excellent way of examining ourselves with regards to idolatry in our lives. Simply put, who or what am I like? Or another way of putting it, who or what am I becoming like? If I am like or becoming more like the world, more interested in material things, less interested in serving the Lord by a real sacrifice of my time and talent and treasures, pretty good indicator I am sitting in the wrong places. If, on the other hand, there's a growing spiritual fruit in my life, ongoing spiritual service that actually costs me something, then it's obvious I'm taking heed to not stand and fall. And so let's take a look at following in verses 23 through 11.1. Many of you uh, growing up like me in Southern California, there were four channels, ABC, NBC, CBS, and KTLA Channel 5, Los Angeles. There was no remote control. We got up to change channels, and school was uphill both ways. On those channels, I was warned to not smoke by the famous like father, like son public service ad. Who remembers that? God bless you old folks. (laughs) A dad is painting the side of the house. His young son has a little brush and he's mimicking him. Dad is driving the car. 
His young son is in a little seat with his own steering wheel. Do you remember those? Those little seats that you got in with your own steering wheel, a little dashboard? Not a car seat, by the way. He could be ejected any moment or rear-ended and burned to death in their convertible 65 Mustang. So there's any number of public service announcement directions that could have gone in. Then they wash the car together. They get each other wet with their hoses. It's really cute. Afterwards, they go for a walk, and the dad is throwing some stones, and his son picks up stones. Then it happens. While sitting for a rest, dad takes a pack of Marlboro out of his pocket. He lights up, and he naturally puts the pack on the ground right next to his son like any good father would. And then the son looks at it, and he picks it up, and he's thinking about it in his little four-year-old brain. And the narrator bemoans, like father, like son, think about it. And then some hokey thing comes on that was handwritten about cancer and stuff like that. And, and, and so I was terrified whenever that came on. At the time, my dad smoked, and I thought, I'm, it's inevitable I'm going to smoke now. I'm going to die. I'm going to have somebody's going to write a little note about me, and I'll be gone. Imitation can, however, be good, especially if you imitate the Apostle Paul. So verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. I am always to seek the well-being, the good of others over my own good, always, period. That's just a great life principle. And so, uh, yeah, anything that's not sinful I can do, but it's not helpful. And anything that's not sinful doesn't necessarily build others up. And so I should think about others in what I do. Verse 23 shows this principle in action, guiding my decisions, are all things, all things lawful for me that all things that are morally neutral and not specifically condemned by the Bible are in the realm of liberty. But since I am seeking the good of others over my own, before I participate in anything, I ask myself two questions. Is it helpful? This seems to mean, is it going to benefit others? And is it something that edifies or builds up? Whatever might be on the current cultural list of gray area liberties available to me, needs to be tempered by whether or not my participation in them will benefit and build up others. I'm not going to give any examples because I would only give examples where I am scot-free and clean, uh, and uh, I won't bring up any of the things that you would have against me. And so, uh, so just the general idea, there's always, you know, as culture moves from time to time, uh, there's always something that Christians are doing that is questionable. And today, there's even more because you've got the intranet, the World Wide Web, and people can blog. They only have three readers, but if you're one of them, it seems like you're part of a million people that must be reading this. And so they can talk about what their liberties are and how they flaunt them and all that. But the idea is forget all that and just say, hey, how does this build other people up? How does it build them up? And uh, what is this, you know, is it really a liberty that I want to get involved with? What follows in verses 25 through 30 is a series of practical situations that the Corinthians found themselves in. Paul put the principle he had just established into action. His first situation was meat being sold in the public marketplace. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. It wasn't the meat. There was nothing wrong with the meat. Demons didn't get in the meat and thereby get released by the gases in your intestinal tract or anything like that. So uh, there's no superstition about meat. It was eating it in the temple of the idol. 
And so Paul added this quote from Psalm 24, since the earth is the Lord's in its fullness, then the meat belonged to him before it was ever sacrificed to an idol. If it was good to eat before the sacrifice, it's good to eat afterwards because you're not worshiping and you're not participating. You're just eating meat. And so don't ask any questions about it. Don't go to the, the uh, butcher because the meat, some of the meat you know, that wasn't eaten in the sacrifice would be sold out in the marketplace. So don't go to the butcher and say, hey, by the way, can you separate meat that was sacrificed to idols from meat that wasn't? Just forget it. Just, just don't ask about it, and then it won't be a problem. Second situation is a private dinner in the home of a non-believer. Verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. You're invited to the home of non-believers. You might desire to go, perhaps to share Jesus with them. In that case, eat whatever's set before you. Don't ask if the meat was sacrificed to an idol. Don't act weird at all. Christians can act so weird. I remember as a young Christian acting really weird all the time, you know, asking questions and wondering, you know, what was going on, trying, you know, I didn't want people to trip me up. I remember one time uh, my friend who, uh, he was my best friend at the time, but I'd become a Christian and he wasn't. Uh, and we were talking about, so I can't even remember what. And so um, something we disagreed about. He says, well, I just read this great article on just this subject. Would you like to read it? And I said, sure. So he brings out Playboy magazine, which, you know, everybody reads for the articles. And um, uh, I said, well, what page is it on? And, and so I, I thumbed to the page. And then, you know, I found the article and I had this thing all folded up so I didn't see any nude photographs and I, I somehow got through it unscathed. But people do that kind of stuff. Uh, before I was a Christian, Pam's brother was walking with the Lord and um, it was his 21st birthday. So we bought him and we knew he was w walking with the Lord. Uh, we bought him a six pack of something, Corona, let's say. And then I took one out and drank it and put a Playboy in the six spot. And I thought, man, this is the greatest gift you can get as a 21-year-old. And then he just gave it back to us. And I, I was stunned. I thought, huh, what's wrong with that guy? I mean, it didn't register to me that he was trying to walk with the Lord. And so uh, those things happen. Maybe they don't happen to you, but they, they happen to me. Uh, and so don't ask and don't act weird. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The non-believer informs you that the meat was sacrificed to an idol. So you, you're cutting it, you know, and you just got it just about, oh, hey, I should tell you that was sacrificed to the goddess Aphrodite at her temple. Put it down. Uh, why would they do something like that? Why would they say that? Because they have some idea that as a Christian, you might have a problem with it, that it might be off limits to you. In that case, so as to not confuse the non-believer, you ought to abstain. That's something where you're going to have to really use your judgment. But, uh, you know, again, I've had this happen to me over the years where people invite you to dinner and then they offer you something and say, oh, wait a minute, uh, as a Christian, can you do this? And a lot of times my answer is, well, yeah, I can do that, but I prefer not to. And that's why Paul quotes Psalm 24 again. Uh, There's a lot to eat and drink that isn't questionable. Sure, everything, you know, is there for you to enjoy, but if it becomes questionable in the mind of the non-believer, then maybe you should back off and, and defer to that. Eat or drink something else so as not to confuse your non-believing host. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. 
For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Paul tells you that it's the conscience of the other person, the non-believer that he was talking about. Why is my liberty judged? Well, if my conscience is clear, why should I submit my behavior to the conscience of someone else? Because in verse 30, if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? I might be free to partake and give thanks to God for my liberty, in this case, food, sacrifice to idols in the private home. But I don't want to risk being evil spoken of for some liberty I exercise in the presence of the non-believer. This happens all the time. I often hear a non-believer say of someone, hey, that guy claims to be a Christian, but I saw him, and then they fill in the blank with something. Then they mention some behavior from the list of questionable practices. And so again, use your best judgment. Uh, If you think it's going to, in some way, um, offend the non-believer, then just don't do it. Uh, Remember, Paul was dealing with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. It could be eaten, but the non-believer might have a hard time understanding why. How come you can't go to the temple of Pan and eat this, but you can eat it at my house? After all, it just took three chapters to try to explain this to Christians. And we're still arguing about this today. And so non-believers, they, they get a, a brain fusion about this, you know? I mean, they, they can't understand. What's the difference? This hamburger was, you know, 30 feet down the road and you can't eat it, but now you can eat it here. Maybe I shouldn't eat it. How about... You know, we just do salad, uh, you know, for the sake of your conscience so that it doesn't blow your mind. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jew or to the Greek, meaning Gentiles, or to the church of God, believers. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. To the glory of God, guided by the gospel, so as to give no offense, which here means to stumble by an obstacle, that's your life principle. Verse 1 of chapter 11, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul wasn't being proud, saying he'd arrived. He was simply saying that he applied these principles in his walk with Jesus and that they were successful in both keeping him on the narrow way and winning people to salvation. In another sense, he's saying, hey, um, I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not doing myself. This is always a danger in the Christian life, is it not? Have we ever, I I probably have, uh, I don't want to admit to it though, then I'd have to repent, but have you ever told somebody to do something that you're not actually doing yourself because it's still a good idea? And so Paul says, hey, these are the principles that I've been living by and I think it's bearing fruit. And you know what? You're some of that fruit. You guys are saved because I lived this way. And when I came to Corinth, I decided to be a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. And so now there's a church at Corinth with Jews and Gentiles. Uh, And in a way, it's exciting that we can argue about this stuff because, you know, years ago, uh, it wasn't an issue to you, but now it is that you're a Christian. And so Paul's not being proud or weird. He's just saying, hey, this this is the way Jesus is leading me. And I think it's a good way. Sometimes I've said to people who are coming in for marriage counsel who don't like what I say to them, I say, well, look, I've been married 43 years. You've been married six months. Why don't you give this a try for another month or two? Uh, You might find that I'm right after all, you know, and I say I could parade a bunch of people here in the church who've been married 20, 30, 40, 50 years by applying these same principles. And so uh, don't be stupid and, you know, have your own ideas. So... Where I am, am I sitting, rather, spiritually speaking, 
Ask yourself, because where you're sitting will determine whether you fall or follow after you stand. Let's pray.